0: you are listening to the archaeology podcast network the archaeology podcast network is sponsored by codify a california benefit corporation visit codify at www.codifi.com ancient tools and burials plants and seeds neanderthals all these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology
1: Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 66. I'm your host, Sarah Head, with my co-hosts today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. And today we're discussing the ancient American horse. When did it go extinct? When was it reintroduced to North America? And could it have been brought across the ocean by the lost tribes of Israel? Get ready to think critically.
0: You will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do
1: dinosaurs. Hey everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today by Ken Fader. How's it going?
2: It's going just ducky, Sarah.
1: Right. And Jeb Card, how's it going?
3: Uh, fine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we are not...
1: We
2: are not little Mary Sunshines today uh, for a that's, number of reasons. Well, we we
3: we always we always know that that is my general uh, my general nature is I'm always a little Mary Sunshine.
1: Uh, sometimes you're a little bit more happy, but I think we're all a little. Um, I think everybody knows why we're all a little on edge this week, but that's okay. That's okay. Right.
3: Any any number of reasons. Anyway,
1: but this week we're going to take it out on horses because. We're going, to literally beat,
3: we're going to literally beat dead horses.
1: We are. There we are go. going to beat the dead horse. Um, so, yeah, today we're going to talk about ancient American horses. And this has brought, been brought about because if you're following my blog, I was sent an advanced copy of a book that I have started reviewing. Uh, it is available if you want to go buy it. I'm not going to link you to it because it's not my job to advertise for them. But it does have some interesting... Ideas and concepts that I was not exposed to prior to reading this book. And one of them is the idea that um, the American horse was possibly brought over to America before it is historically recorded that the actual horse made a hero. Um, Which would you, be
2: in the um, what the late 15th, early 16th century, and f- horses brought over by the Spanish.
1: By the Spanish. That's
2: established. We know they brought horses over right. in the 16th yeah. century.
1: Right. Yeah. Now, before we go too far into this, I do want to let people know that there was an American horse. It there was an ancient American horse. Um, it was uh, around during the Pleistocene. Uh, or into the Pleistocene, it went extinct around the same time most of the megafauna in North America went extinct. and yeah,
2: but at about by about ten thousand years ago, it was something like thirty five entire genera of mostly large mammals became extinct, right. and that's that's a topic for another another show. What was the cause of this mass extinction, both in America and in Australia at about the same time? Was it because humans had suddenly become spectacular? uber killers of these animals and that that contributed to their extinction or was it climate change was it something else that went on and that's that's a very broad topic for another for a, another podcast but here the idea here is that traditionally uh, archaeologists paleozoologists um, have, uh, have stated that, look, the, the, the last of these, the, the evidence of the, these, this large megafauna is all at around about 10,000 years ago, give or take. And the horses, along with woolly mammoths and mastodons and ground sloths and a, oh, uh, and a, a number of l- bison species much larger than the modern species, all became extinct at the same time.
3: My so, two favorites that I teach about in my classes are the megatherium, <laughs> which is a giant friggin' sloth, as you mentioned. Yes. Yep. And the Glyptodon, which is a giant friggin' armadillo the size of a small car.
2: Right. Amazing. There's also the giant beavers that are yes. like six feet long. And I, I tell my students that in fact Hoover Dam was built by the giant beavers but in the Pleistocene. Because you need beavers that big to build a dam. That
3: obviously. that seems that seems legit.
1: Well were there yeah, not absolutely. I, I think I just saw an article and I don't know if this is true or not, but I hope it is because weren't there like giant otters? And like Oh, that
2: would be cute. I'd I like know. To, I'd, I'd like giant that's otters. That's
1: all sure. I can think of is these giant otters rolling around on their backs, busting like armadillos on rocks yeah. on their bellies, yeah. you know?
3: Yeah. I, I do not know the answer to that. And that's actually <laughs> really interesting.
1: <laughs> I was just, but
3: that would be cool. I could I could use that in class because, you know, I've generally have found cute animals work well in class.
1: Uh, tomorrow.
3: Tomorrow is slow. Is the slow loris. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> have <laughs> you used there's,
2: the there's, there's 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 definitive archaeological evidence of human um, human beings human predation of mammoths and mastodons and oh, yes. uh, bison. So there, you no know, I mean, when you when you have an actual. Fluted point embedded in yeah. the a bone, a bison bone, and I think one of the oldest sites in North America, the Manis site, which is up in Washington State, has a bone point embedded mm-hmm. in yes. a ver- vertebra of a woolly mammoth. Mammoth yeah. Mastodon, I don't remember which.
1: I use like that over
2: thirteen thousand BP, I think.
3: Right, I use that to 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 sort of help explain the concept of context. To mm-hmm. to my oh, students, oh, absolutely, yeah,
2: and um, the, the X rays of the vertebra, it, it's just yep. it's it's stunning, it's astonishing. But yeah. then, but then the question is, all right, so we know those critters became extinct in North America around ten thousand years ago. But what about this claim that um that 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 nevertheless there are horse bones that are far more recent than ten thousand years ago, and how do we explain their presence?
1: And more so, specifically, what is the evidence? Yeah, it's more specifically that they are more recent than the acknowledged die-off but they are older than uh the historical contact the the historical reintroduction of the horses by the spanish in the in the 1500s and so this this is a claim that people may be familiar with it's not new it's it's on the internet if you look it up um It's usually used to uh, support certain fringe theories, and certain religious theories that are uh, not very well supported by these particular bones. Now, people need to be aware that we do have specimens, we do have equis specimens, um, in artifact assemblages from prehistoric sites, and this should not be surprising, honestly, to anyone. Um, because when American or Americans, when, uh, native peoples first started settling the Americas, you know, they came over here across the Bering Strait, which is the same way the horses got across into Europe and Asia. So it was just kind of a back and forth. And we've talked about the Bering Strait before and how it was more like a big highway and less of like a little tiny pathway. Oh, it's a,
2: th- a thousand miles from North to South.
1: Yeah. exactly. So it's a
2: gigantic plain. It's right. not a little. Yeah, it's not like only the really skinny animals could fit across the bridge. Exactly. This is a wide ranging bridge.
1: And in, in it allowed for flow, for for species flow both ways. So it's not like things just came from Asia into America. Things went from America into Asia and down into Europe as well. So, and this is important to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about the the ancient American horse, because that's how we still have horses. Apparently, is they brand batches of american horses migrated across the bering strait into asia and down into uh indian europe and were then domesticated over in europe um and i believe asia but in america they died out and that is because i there is no evidence on the bones that we find of s species of them being beasts of burden or domesticated but we do have lots of evidence of the animals being eaten which is apparently what humans do when they go to a new land is they just start killing everything and eating it
2: seems like a pretty good strategy to me and besides I just I want to just to, you know let everybody know here I am deathly afraid of horses. I think kidding? that they actually, I think horses are carnivorous and they are have <laughs> evil intent. I've ridden on horses twice. I was terrified both times. I didn't like it at all. People made fun of me and people would tell me, oh, don't let the horse do that. This is a 2000 pound beast that wants to kill me and I'm supposed to control it. No, that's not going to happen. So I, I come at this from, a, a, I think, a different perspective than you guys. I am terrified of horses. Oh, I don't love like- horses.
1: They just hate when I ride on them. I have been bucked off of two horses and another one rubbed me off on a tree. So I don't <laughs> ride horses, but I like looking at them.
2: <laughs> All right.
3: Well, I'm, I'm in between. I have not much experience with them
2: and you're you're a better man for it jeb stay the hell away from them <laughs> they're dangerous animals but now here's here's the thing we have really kind of two things going on don't we sarah yeah jeb? we really we do. got the possibility that horses unlike all those other critters that we've talked about actually did not become extinct at the end of the pleistocene continue to live in north america and maybe became extinct sometime later past ten thousand years ago were extinct when the Spanish came in here, who then introduced horses anew. So there's that There's that possibility, or there's the possibility that they did become extinct 10,000 years ago, but the, but there are horses in North America long before the Spanish Entrada, long after the Pleistocene, because they were brought here by unknown migrants from the old world who had herds of horses that they brought with them across the Atlantic or the Pacific. Those are two very different scenarios with their very different probabilities.
1: Right. And yeah. So to just kind of jump in, I, I like the theory of the, um, there, what I try to explain to people is there's no hard date for the extinction of the horse, uh, the, the ancient American horse. It's, it's, uh, around dates. Like we stop seeing horses in, um, Assembly or how to put this? We stop seeing horses in fossils around this time. Um, We stop seeing them just free and wild in the the, around, and we also don't see them in artifact assemblages that are associated with humans after a certain point. And so, that's right what helps us kind of get a date for when the horse went extinct in North America. Yeah. But, but it's it's
2: not just archaeologists, also paleontologists exactly in the New World don't find horse bones exactly. That, with very few maybe outliers, they don't find horse bones that date to between ten thousand years ago and about the early part of the the um the sixteenth century. Right. And so that's that's that would seem to be pretty persuasive evidence that yeah, the horse became extinct ten thousand years ago and was not reintroduced into North America until the Spanish arrived in the sixteenth century.
3: Right. Isn't there isn't this is this somewhere where mitochondrial DNA would also kind of jump into the game?
1: It is, and there have been yeah. some genetic studies that have tentatively been done on the same kind of studies that are done on um, human populations they're trying to do with horse populations, and they're getting the same kind of mixed results. you know there's there's all these haplogroups and all this kind of stuff, and they're finding. How the horses are kind of related to each other and it's helping them kind of track backwards because all horses basically kind of evolved out of, I think, two different branches, I want to say. I might be wrong, but either way, they're, they're trying to track all that back because it's interesting and it might help with certain things. But, of course, like with the human DNA thing, we keep running into... Uh, there are certain groups that don't have a complete grasp of how uh DNA and haplogroups work and they're of course, saying that there's a mysterious haplogroup X within the horse population and that haplogroup X is the mysterious American horse that never fully went extinct and when are are the are the
3: haplogroup X horses also supposed to be white people
1: um
2: <laughs> from the middle east probably
3: are they are they crossed with a lemur and angel DNA? Oh
1: Angel horses. Uh, I like this Pegasus. There we go. We have Pegasus yes, in go, America. I'm liking that already. But
2: but but here's the deal. The 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 Sarah, how many bones are we talking about of horses that ostensibly have carbon dates that would put them sometime after 10,000 years ago and before the Spanish? Because I think the sample size is so tiny, and I don't know that there's ever been any genetic, any DNA recovered from those bones in which anybody has been able to positively assert these horses are not related to North American horses. They are more closely related to European or Asian um populations of horses.
1: Now, see, and without that
2: positive evidence, merely saying, well, they could be, is is certainly not the most no. effective approach to the question.
1: Now, see, there's a couple things there, because as far as I understand, we don't have a DNA profile for the ancient American horses. And, and keep in mind, when I say horses, I'm also including, like, I, I don't think there were um, what are called asses yet at this point because i think the american horse the ancient american horse is like the predecessor to all other horses but that didn't happen until after it went over the Bering Strait. so while it was here in america there was only like one acknowledged species of ancient horse the mm. problem is is as i understand we don't have a genetic profile for that so there's no way to compare it so this mysterious so that, haplogroup X and I'm really just saying haplogroup X it's not called that it's just it's, No,
3: I know, but it might as well be. It,
1: it may as right. well be. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It but we don't know what that looks like. But you know, this this is exactly the kind of argument
2: that you get from the ancient aliens crowd that we don't have the positive evidence for it, but do you have evidence that proves us wrong? Right. It, it, it's that it's that kind of of form of very weak reasoning that seems to be applied here without any again without any affirmative evidence that the horses in north america that we know were here eleven thousand years ago are not related to horse the handful of horse bones that may have anomalous outlier radiocarbon dates that they're not related and they're more closely related some population of horses in some other part of the world this it's all it's nothing but hand waving and kind of pointless hand waving
3: well, well and we you, also go, go ahead go
2: ahead
1: well i was just gonna say and as ken pointed out earlier the possibility that this small sample group of of Equus bones that are dating after the um die-off date it could just be um bad dating you know these it could yeah. just be a random sample of bad dates
3: yeah i mean let's let's be clear to our to our audience uh all sorts of radiometric dates, most famously radiocarbon dating, are statistical in nature. They, they follow a, popu- uh, like a, a normal distribution. Mm-hmm. And in addition to things like calibration and whatnot, um, we generally refer to there being uh, two sigma dates, two standard deviation dates, uh, which means that when you – first off, when you see a radiocarbon date – Uh, One of the things people like to do, and I used to see archaeologists, they've they've learned not to, is they would try to sort of say, oh, if it's from 3,000 to 2,000 BCE, then, well, this happened in 2,500. It's like, no, no, there's the exact same chance it happened in 3,000 or 2,800 or 2,200 or 2,000 or any of the other years in there. And at two sigma, that's a 95% chance that it happened in that date range, somewhere in that date range where… Uh,
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
3: There's a 5% chance, that means one out of 20, that it's wrong. That it's just straight up wrong. And that's not even right. including things like you screwed up on collecting the sample or right. it's in the wrong place or bioturbation that, you know, animals drug this bone around or any other problem. That's just literally error in how you're measuring. Uh, radioactive decay, never minding, or how many, how many uh, molecules you're counting, never, if you're doing AMS, never mind other issues. Now, that doesn't mean radiocarbon is wrong, but that's why if you look at real archaeological projects, uh, if they can afford to, right. uh, they will get a battery of radiocarbon dates exactly. because
2: they know there
3: could be a problem.
2: And they assiduously record the stratigraphic positioning of every specimen from which they obtain a C14 date because you want to make sure that if you've got 10 dates and they're stratigraphically aligned, you want to make absolutely sure that that, the, that it actually follows the stratigraphy. When you have all these kinds of dates that are in lower strata that have more recent dates, you know that there's something amiss. And from, again, based on what I have heard and read about these very few dates of horse bones, we don't even have that level of, of data to assess those claims.
1: Now, no, and the only article that I have read uh, while doing research for this that was in any way convincing to me about um, the possible existence of the American horse past die-off date uh, was written, written by uh, Craig C. Downer, and it was written in 2014. It's called The Horse and the Burrow as Positively Contributing Returned Natives in North America. and The reason I like this article is because uh, Downer is using... He does use a lot of these off-dated... These these possible young bones. Um, But he's using them as a way of saying that the horse lived past the die-off date. Mm -hmm. And it is possible maybe not probable but possible that small herds might have survived we to have, the are point, actually go ahead i'm sorry uh, to the point that when they were reintroduced by the spanish there were wild herds that could have been interbred with the spanish horses and therefore that makes the horses that have come back basically a reintroduction of a species of a native species to the area and he's arguing this to protect modern wild horses because they are not an invasive species but yet they are treated that way in a lot of areas because i mean they eat everything they trample what they can't eat i mean they're destructive
3: sure and i you know and and while i would again i i think all the cherry picking and other things we've talked about could could impact that that's at least a plausible though i would definitely want to see more evidence like i would not teach it without more evidence but uh i think we're coming up close to our our first break time um i think what we need to pick up in the second section of the show is that's not what we're actually talking about is it right we're talking about people that want uh chariots and <laughs> cavalry formations, yeah. and, thi- and 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 Ben Hur, and and Technicolor dreamcoats, and other sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, no, I mean I'm, I'm joking, but they basically want it to look like, uh, just put it bluntly, the Bronze and Iron Age Middle East. Sure,
1: exactly. And
3: and and that's a whole other problem yeah. that I think we can address. You know, Ken's like, uh, you know, the ancient aliens people are like prove to me that's not like well you know what actually fine challenge
1: accepted <laughs> <laughs> jeb will take that challenge all right let's go to break real quick and when we come sure. back we will talk about who actually reintroduced the horse to north america
0: Lithodomus VR is a breakthrough virtual reality company that creates archaeologically accurate 3D reconstructions of the ancient world. For just $1.99 US, you can tour ancient Jerusalem from the comfort of your own home. Using their app, available from the App Store and Google Play, and with a VR headset such as Google Cardboard, you can see ancient Jerusalem in all of its first century CE historically accurate glory. Lithodomus was founded by Simon Young, and he says, Lithodomus was inspired by a burning desire to travel back in time and see the ancient world firsthand. VR gave you the tools to do it. Check out Lithodomus VR at their website, www.LithodomusVR. Com. That's www.lithodomosvr.com. Lithodomos is a proud sponsor of the Archaeology
1: Podcast Network. Hi everyone, and we are back. And we're going to talk about who reintroduced the horse into America again. But Ken, you wanted yeah. to hit on a couple things real quick. Well, yeah, because
2: we've kind of been hinting around this this notion of remnant populations. These are popul- small groups that for whatever reason managed to avoid the general extinction event for their species. And maybe the coolest example of that are the Wrangell Island woolly mammoths. Now, we've been talking about this extinction event, 10, 000, an event doesn't mean it happened like on a Tuesday following right. the end of the Pleistocene, but it's this, the, that some time around 10 to 11,000 years ago, massive extinction of large, large game animals in North America, um, South America, and in Australia, um, and the, the, that period of the extinction of mammoths is usually given at around woolly mammoths 10,000 years ago. In the 1990s, um, research on this island that's about 90 miles off the coast of, Siber- of Russia, Siberia, um, a publication, uh, Radiocarbon is the journal um, in which this article was published, in which they found substantial evidence of uh, woolly mammoths on this island. The mammoths had undergone Um, island dwarfing so they were like pygmy mammoths and the 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 radiocarbon dates on these went back some to 200,000 years ago all the way up until around 4,000 years ago so very clear evidence that the mammoths had survived the extinction of mammoths all over the world by about 6,000 years very recently, they actually have extracted DNA from the bones of those four thousand year old mammoths, and what they're finding out is they think the the thing that caused their extinction, which is just a you know a, the tick of a geological clock ago, um, is the lack of genetic diversity. That they, the sure. population was so small because it's a relatively small island that so much inbreeding that there was not a lot of genetic diversity and that that contributed to the extinction of the animals. I want to point out, by the way, that if they are ever able to clone mammoths, I want me a pygmy (laughs) mammoth.
1: I do too. Can you
2: imagine? These guys are between like four to seven feet tall at their, at the most. Uh, That would be pretty cool. They're about the Um, size of a horse. Yeah. Well, and this actually, there's another, there's another podcast, maybe not for us to do on how, Cryptozoologists make these claims all the time that there are remnant populations of dinosaurs in Africa, of, of Loch Ness monster is a remnant, remnant, please, a remnant population of one of plesiosaurs. Um, but these, this coelacanth is kind of the what the poster child of the animal thought extinct, what 60 million years, and some guy is walking through a fish market in in South Africa and sees some guy selling. The a coelacanth, and how is that possible? And then we now know there are a couple of populations, one in Indonesia, one off the coast of South Africa. It does happen. Uh, when I was an, a graduate student at Yukon, one of the professors in the biology department there was an expert on, I think it's the Chacoan peccary in South America, which was at that point in the early 1970s, it was known only from fossils that had been discovered yeah. in the 1930s in South America This guy went there to collect fossils, and instead he found living populations of that species. Hmm. It does happen, but usually it's an isolate. It's it's a mountaintop. Um, It's an island that's been separated from the mainland, so there's not been the kind of competition. There are no carnivores. So there's some reason why those populations managed to survive the widespread extinction of the rest of their members. Um, how you, that applies to the horse here is, a, is would be a, an open question. It doesn't seem very likely that th- that could have happened in the open plains of North America. Right. But remnant populations exist. And if that's all they were talking about, we'd say, well, that's interesting. We need more evidence. It's, it, it is remotely possible. but. I guess that's really not what the point of this conversation is, really, of why, how horses got to North America 5,000 or 4,000 or 3,000 years ago.
1: No, it, what... it, it wouldn't be an fantasies po- or an archaeological fantasies podcast if we didn't discuss how this affects human interaction with them. So, Because otherwise we would just be talking about horses and that has nothing to do really with archaeology. But there is... Several theories that exist within the fringe that the horse, after the die-off, that the horse did die off, but that after the die-off, they were reintroduced to America before the Spanish, and they were reintroduced by pretty much only one... I mean, I'm sure there's various other theories that are very small out there, but the big theory is basically that the horse was reintroduced to America when the Lost Tribes of Israel somehow managed to get across the ocean and settled itself here in uh, America. So, let's have it that one.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know what? I I, I actually bring this up because I do a thing in class where my students are supposed to look at various possible – are things we would do on this show and hyperdiffusion of various kinds comes up and most don't do middle east some do some do and i occasionally mention this in class and students seem to like the idea sometimes the idea that you have uh, contact between shang china and the olmec and okay, people right. try to go well they both like jade well, they do, although it's a different kind of jade. And also Mesoamericans loved any kind of, not any kind, but a lot of different kinds of green stone, mm-hmm. which is why turquoise becomes bigger when they are more in contact with uh, southwestern U.S., as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's color directionality, which, eh. um, And people, and, and, and they try to suggest, oh, well, there's the the scratchings on Olmec things look like Shang writing, which while there's some people who say there are, there's a lot of people who say they don't. And I'm like, great. So the Shang, and I tell my students, what are the Shang? And eventually they might go, well, yeah, they're bronze age China. I'm like, Bronze Age China, as in Bronze Age, as in that thing not in Mesoamerica. Bronze.
2: Is that why they're called the Bronze Age, Jeff? It
3: might be. Now there <laughs> is bronze. Be, okay. There is bronze in the Americas. South America. It's right? yeah, it's and it's a lot later. There's metallurgy that early, although not really in Mesoamerica, and it's much later. Um, also, no oxen, no rice, no glazed pottery, no millet, uh, no chariots. I mean, you can just start going down the list of things that you find in the Shang. And I think this would be the same thing. It's like, if you want right. the Lost Tribes of Israel to have horses, where's the rest of it? Never mind pictures, oh, horses.
1: Right. And, and chariots and and that's the crux of it it as much as it is a cool idea and and we we touch on a lot of these They're fun ideas to think about but there's again no evidence if there were horses and they were domesticated there would be evidence of this domestication in the garbage that was left behind by these people there would be harnesses there would be tack there would be broken chariot pieces or there would be dead horses there would be dead horses <laughs> and that's the other thing the bones that we have recovered of uh american horses that are in archaeological assemblages do not show the stress on the bones that would be expected of a beast of burden what they do show are cut and gnaw marks and pot polishing they so this is examples of predators eating the horses and dragging them into habitation sites. It's evidence of humans eating horses. They were food. They weren't domesticated. And I would, I would like to
2: point out here that those people eating horses could not have been members of the Lost Tribes of Israel because horses are not kosher, because they do not have cloven hooves. Read your Leviticus people.
1: <laughs> and that, well, that that was an angle I didn't even think about thanks ken yeah
2: and and, and then there's a,
3: there's another angle i mean we 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 love our our people that try to cherry pick uh ethno-historic accounts and and, and all oh. such well well there there there's one that actually works beautifully here so i have in front of me Um, a book by Grant D. Jones, an ethnohistorian, The Conquest of the Last Maya Kingdom. This is published by Stanford University Press in 1998. The story I'm looking for is probably in a few other of my books, but this is relatively recent, and it was on my shelf, and I pulled it off. And I am looking at specifically Cortez's Lame Horse on pages 36 and 37. So uh, basically, uh, after Cortez... uh, oversees the conquest of the aztec empire he sends uh several of his his uh his lieutenants his lieutenants down to uh kick ass and take names (laughs) and uh one of these is uh alvarado and uh he conquers guatemala uh, patriot alvarado and he's frankly kind of a psychotic and uh he, uh, I'm I intimately familiar with his history because uh, I, the site I did my dissertation on in El Salvador is part of the Alvarado family holdings. Um, but another one was Cristobal de Olide. And Olied was sent to Honduras, and his name is occasionally um, stupidly brought into Ciudad Blanca legends. <laughs> but uh, he disappeared. No, no, he didn't. He was killed at dinner, and then his people went back to Cortez. But uh, Cortez was pissed at this guy because he sends Olid down, conquer Honduras for me. And like li- goes down. He's like, you know what? Actually, now this is mine. <laughs> it's mine now. It's mine now. Screw you, What's Cortez. Wow. And And Cortez is so pissed off. He doesn't get in a boat. He mounts up and goes overland through Mesoamerica a Mesoamerica that he has just landed in a few years ago and defeated the Aztec empire but by no means has conquered in any meaningful sense and so this is sort of a your classic like expedition they're called entradas in 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 Spanish uh, accounting and so he goes through and he treks through the fairly dense forests of northern Guatemala. He actually probably gets really close to Tikal, to the, to the great Maya city of Tikal. So this is the one place, I mean, where you've got literally conquistadors and the helmets and, this, and all that trekking through, like, Maya rainforest. And uh, so he's going through there, and he meets up with the, uh, the Itza uh in the fifteen twenties and he meets King Con Ek and all this and then there's a, a, a basically one page long it is at this camping place that Cortez performed a simple act I am now quoting that would grow into one of the most enduring legends about the first Itzah Spanish encounter a legend that deeply affected later colonial encounters between Itzas and Spaniards. The Itzah by the way Finally surrendered. This is happening in the 1520s. The Itza finally surrendered to the Spaniards in 1697. Oh wow! Yeah, they stayed independent. Now other parts around them were being conquered, but they stayed an in independent Maya kingdom for like 170 years.
1: Yeah, that's pretty. So good. that's
3: that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. It, so in this town. That is, in these cultivations, this is him quoting uh, historical records, there stayed behind a horse whose hoof had been pierced by a stick and who could not walk. The Lord promised to cure it. I do not know what he will do. Now, that's Cortez writing. Diaz writes that he ordered us to leave that town uh, of Noh Peten, basically Great Peten, and... Um, a reddish-black horse that had taken sick as a result of the deer hunt and whose body fat had been wasted and could not kept. Now, according to some Spanish versions of the legend, this horse, the first possessed by the Itza's, soon died and was elevated to the status of an idol made of wood or of lime or stone. Um, Apparently, one version of this was destroyed by a Franciscan friar in 1618, which caused a rebellion. Um, In 1697, when it finally is conquered, uh, some Spaniards say that a bone, like the femur of the of the, the horse was actually still over an altar. Now, a lot of this seems to be at least somewhat embellished, but uh, as Jones puts it, all versions, however, suggest that the horse endured as a significant historical reference, that in other words, right. this thing was a pretty di- damn big deal. And there are, I mean, there's a lot of legends, and we may come back to this, but there are a lot of legends about how exactly... Indigenous people took the Spaniards, but there does seem to have been at least some wonder and confusion at their ships, which were huge, and their horses. The Spaniards didn't really understand, or the, the the indigenous people didn't really get the whole horse thing, and they kind of sort of thought of them as deer. <laughs> Which is the closest referent. and in yeah, other there. cases, they there is some belief. Now, again, this is Spaniards love to make legends about this, but in, supposedly in some battles, mm-hmm. like you know, a Spaniard be riding his horse very famously uh, in, against Tekunuman and others. Uh, oh no, it's not Tecumman; it's it's the other one uh, where where Pedro de Alvarado is his, his horse is speared, but because that doesn't kill him, the the the, the guy he's fighting is fighting, he's like oh. Uh, I speared him because he's this one great animal. Th- right. Th- that, I, I don't know if I buy that, but there clearly was a lot of sort of awe and surprise and trying to make sense of these creatures. These were not known
1: Exactly. To right,
2: right. Yeah.
1: And if they had been introduced before the Spanish, in the numbers that would have been hot... You would just have to, if you had the tribes of Israel bringing their giant flocks of horses with them, they would be they're familiar. Called, they're herds,
2: herds of horses,
1: not no, flocks. no, no, they're flocks. We've already established All they're right. pegasus. All right, there you go. They're angel um, horses. You know,
2: in in North America, we don't have that kind of detailed written record, but you know what? There are horses depicted in rock art throughout the American Southwest, and what's kind of cool is rock art's notoriously difficult to date. But when you, when you look at the rock art in context, when you look at the images of the people near the horses, when you look at the images of the people on the horses, there are two kinds. One, a very recent rock art in which there are people depicted riding horses who are wearing feathered headdresses. Well, that would seem to imply we're looking at historical rock art that depicts Native Americans riding on horses. But there also are examples of men riding on horses who are carrying muskets, Mm -hmm. who have hats that that look like 16th century European headgear. And so almost certainly date to that period. If you look at all the rock art in the American Southwest, you will be very hard pressed to find among the, in in ancient rock art among all of the deer and the the antelope that are being depicted and the bighorn sheep and the snakes and the birds you won't find horses, so that they don't, at least from that, looking at it that way, but in terms of these artistic depictions of horses in rock art, it all looks like it dates to after the Spanish arrived in the New World, and there certainly is no definitive evidence whatsoever, whatsoever, of depictions that date to before
1: that. Right, and. Uh, when we get back from break, because I think we should go just a tad early. Um, when we get back from break, we should talk about the basically the appropriation of uh, Native American oral histories and rock art like that to help further this idea of, a, of remnant horses or of the reintroduction of horses before Columbus arrived. So let's take sure. a quick break and... Uh, When we come back, we'll start touching on that.
0: Hello, APN listeners. Today, we have some exciting news. The Center for Digital Archeology, span PCS, and Codify have teamed up to create an exciting new online training program built especially for you. Visit digitaltraining.site and you can sign up for free interactive office hour sessions to get help and share ideas about everything from digital photography, to drone usage in archeology, span and even tips and tricks on how to prepare for your next job interview. We're offering deep dive, two hour webinars and intensive single day workshops so that you can truly level up your skills. This is cutting edge training provided by experts in the field of digital imaging, cultural resource management, business practices and more. Courses will fill up fast, so visit digitaltraining.site today and see what we have in store for you. That's digitaltraining.site. We look forward to learning with you.
1: And we are back. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, actual, well, I mean, there's two different things going on here. There's like the use of uh, Native American oral traditions to kind of cherry pick their stories in a way to support the idea of there being horses in America before Columbus. And you see this a lot uh, with fringe groups that will do the whole, well, native American mythology says, and it's like, well, which native American are you talking about? What mythology right. are you talking about? What's the actual word they're using? Cause I like how they'll say, well, there's this creature in native American mythology that sounds like it's a horse. Well, that's great. But what were they calling it? And, if it was eating people it probably wasn't a horse
2: no they are they are carnivorous They're absolutely horses <laughs> you, can't, you can't trust horses
3: well that, probably, yeah. that does actually occasionally happen in small like, like, we might see if we can try to find that for your show notes but carnivorous yes. horses they can get desperate for things
2: Oh, wow. I know they will bite. It's, it's usually when they see me coming and I want to get on it's their back. That's when they become carnivorous. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if
3: you're made of calcium, but that's my understanding, especially in like calcium poor areas. But that's me talking. But I have read that there are there are isolated documented accounts of horses eating things. Right, that are not right. grass.
2: That are not grass. One of the, the real issues, though, of, of taking literally Native American stories or folklore, is that that usually comes through the filter of it often comes through the filter of missionaries, who exactly. are feeding them information and interpreting that information as a as a tool to convert them to Christianity. And so you will you will sometimes hear creationists say every Native American tribe has a story of a great flood. Which is not Number true. one, that's not true, but number two, that flood story is being fed back to missionaries who fed it to the Indians, and the Indians are telling the missionaries what the missionaries want to hear, and that, so you've got to be extremely careful, um, and if we, if we do talk about Quetzalcoatl and this whole notion that there was a, a white savior who came from across the sea, again, we may be looking at, at, at uh, stories that are being fed back to missionaries as a way of reinforcing what the missionaries want to hear in the first place. And then they just
1: amplify it when they go back home. Right. Or they'll, they're cleaning it up because it can't possibly be true. Um, yeah. So when you're looking at historical written documents like that, then yeah, you're encountering a lot of filtration and a lot of editing, very heavy editing, uh, on behalf of the people who recorded it. Um, What I've seen the French like to do, though, is they'll claim that they have spoken with a tribal elder and said elder has told them this story about a horse or another case is the woolly mammoth or these monsters. You'll see this a lot with the giants. Well, there's Native American stories about giants. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean there were giants. You're just interpreting that or you're reinterpreting something that you hear them saying or you're just making it up so it sounds like you have a foot to stand on
2: yeah it's what's kind of amazing is is i do a little exercise in, in one of my classes where i have kids collect creation myths and then have them and very often these kids are super naive and they they come back with this surprising story that sounds a lot like that's oh no this is a Native American myth and it sounds very much like um, Genesis uh-huh. and I have to tell them that you're what you're getting here is not a, a, a native a, 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 a creation myth unfiltered you're get you're not getting the original myth you're getting this filtered through missionaries who are trying They've got their own agendas, but that happens fairly commonly. It's fairly you you can't use those to prove much of anything about um, whether or not Native Americans were connected somehow to to a biblical framework, or whether or not the horses were in Native America before the coming of the the Spanish.
1: Right, and the other thing that happens is, and you know, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but this happens you know, with the whole feedback loop that is created with the reinterpretation of the historical context. The problem is, is with an oral tradition, that gets cycled into the oral tradition and into the history. And then the next thing you know is you've got ancestors who were riding horses, even though the horse did not exist at that time. And so it is possible that there are some tribes that may have a story like that, but that doesn't mean that there were horses at that time, you know, especially right. since oral history time is not con- is not congruent with actual historical time.
2: Right. And, you know, and it makes it you, you can certainly understand that for a culture who in the 17th century or 18th century in the plains for whom horses were a very significant part of their of their existence. That kind of retrofitting their creation story to include horses from a long time ago. I mean, that that makes it, it certainly makes sense that a, that a culture would would do that, exactly. and not and to you know. And so again, taking those literally as yeah. history is the same as taking well, the Old Testament of the Bible. literally.
3: And I don't even, I don't even think it's a. I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily an oral written, uh, oral versus written thing. I mean, one of the things I point out to my students when I'm talking about conceptions of time. I show them medieval depictions of the uh, the Old Testament, or excuse me, of the New Testament, like scenes from the life of Jesus, right. and they're wearing like 14th or 13th century fashion,
1: mm-hmm. and
3: it's it's like French medieval architecture, and 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 this didn't matter. And I always I always composite or I, I compare this, I contrast this with while we have all kinds of bullshit about our history. We get very specific about material stuff. So, like, even though our history may be wrong in a number of ways and in, in this or that thing, we uh, we you know James Cameron makes a big damn deal about getting the the stickers uh, right on 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 the luggage on the Titanic, <laughs> or uh, you know all that. And then and then when he gets called out for, um, you know, what was it very famously Neil deGrasse Tyson? called him out for getting the stars wrong in, in Titanic when they redid it as a 3D movie, they went back and fixed the stars. <laughs> we are very familiar with this idea of 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 the material culture making sense. Like if you we, we will tell total lies in movies and documentaries, but damn straight the clothing's probably gonna be, at least in the last few hundred years, accurate. Well,
1: Even if the yeah. clothing's
3: being used to tell a bullshit story
1: there's that's funny that you bring that up because um uh Stranger Things the television show that you have not you know, yet watched but should because it's amazing. There's
2: actually I like it a lot, yeah. There
1: was actually um so the kids when they're downstairs in the basement and they're playing their D&D game, um uh, in the background they have these older D&D box sets and uh I guess there's like this whole thing in the nerdverse where Two of those box sets have like from a like pe- the
3: late, the, they're like from the late '80s or something. Yeah, they're
1: like totally not from the time period. They're they're yeah. they're younger than the time period that the kids yeah. are, that the show's supposed to be taking place in. And like, it just cracks me up that okay, guys, there's one freaking box set back there that's from like yeah. the late '80s. Come on, get over it.
2: Yeah, I me mean, that's. <laughs> meanwhile aliens right exactly that's if so if i think half of the goofs and when you look up a movie or a tv show on imdb.com half of the goofs are those kinds of of anachronisms where they did this but that could they could not have done it during the period of the that's covered by this movie because it wasn't invented yet or they weren't doing something yet um and uh, so that that it's it's an interesting kind of parlor game to look for those kinds of goofs, but which
1: actually kind of feeds into the whole idea of getting the horses to America, because we we were briefly talking about this at the break, but like it's kind of the same concept. Could they have? Could uh, yeah. you know the Lost Tribes of Israel loaded a bunch of horses on a ship and yeah. gotten it over here?
2: Yeah. Yeah. See, so you never want to be confronted with those. Well, couldn't? It ha- could it not have had? Because you well, know, yeah, sure. There's always that. Well, it could have, but it's actually it's not a simple thing. This when the Spanish brought horses over to the New World in large numbers in the 16th century. They had an infrastructure, man. They had, they had, they they kept the horses in slings below decks because they knew you put a bunch of horses in a ship and it was weird noises, weird smells, and the thing is rocking back and forth. The horses are going to go nuts and end up killing one another by, by running into walls. Yeah. So they had them in slings, and then to get them out of the boats, they had hoists. And I think even then, the numbers that I have seen is the mortality rates were greater than 50%. More than half of the horses died. And at, so and that's in the 16th century really did anybody have the technology to do this efficiently substantially before that we also mentioned before the uh, before the last break that in the bayou tapestry which dates to the 11th century ad the, you know, 1066 that there I- there are images of horses on boats being transported but they're being transported across the English Channel so you're talking about 30 40 miles of the channel you're not talking about thousands of miles of ocean well and the, um it's the we can't rolling... say it is impossible but but it's it doesn't seem likely that anybody would have would have successfully transported a lot of horses across an ocean
1: well and i mean at that period the english channel is not like the choppiest of waters either is it i've never actually been Uh,
3: it can it can be can they can be
1: but you're but you know at i think at the white cliffs of
2: dover across to france you're looking at less than it's 22 miles or 21 miles so that's doable you're not going to lose a substantial number of horses but when you've got you know you're at sea for a month or two months going across the atlantic there's a there's all kinds of stuff that can go wrong and uh, again, without the without the appropriate um, infrastructure, that's going to be a, that's a pretty that's going to be very difficult.
1: Well, and the types of boats that were supposedly used because I I don't think we've talked about this particular migration in much detail, but the types of boats that the lost tribes were supposedly using to get across the oceans to get here they were basically coastal hop- hopping. Right. To get here in the first place. These are not big boats. Where are you putting the people and the horses and the supplies that you would need to get across an ocean and then be able to live successfully once you get to the shores of the New World? I mean, yeah. just logistics not... Yeah. not there. it's, it's the,
2: the the typical canard on the part of the arch diffusionists aimed at archaeologists and historians is that we think that ancient people were were incapable of 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 sailing across the ocean we that's really not what we're saying and in this case we're not saying they were incapable people what we're saying is in the context of their time period what are the odds Yeah, um, exactly. And, th- and then more importantly what's the evidence i mean we can we can argue Podcast after podcast, could they have done it, but that we always have to fall back on well if they could, if they couldn't there has to be evidence there has to be positive affirmation of their presence here, which absolutely doesn't exist
1: exactly and I mean, and I think the last thing that I really want to touch on, and I'm really just touching on it because it irritated the crap out of me when I read it in this article is the um the alpalooza. I think I said that correctly. The Appaloosa horse. Appaloosa, yeah. The Appaloosa horse breed um, that is credited to being created by and is still maintained to this day by the Nest Pierce
2: peoples. Nes Pierce, Nes Pierce, right? They have have Pierce noses. That's where it comes from. That's
1: French. Ah, well, that explains that. Yeah, but so the Nest Pierce people and. This is a very beautiful horse breed. Uh, it's, it's a lovely horse breed. It's also a very American horse breed in that it's, it's maintained here in America by Native Americans. It came about from the introduction of horses to the Nespiers people, and they fell in love with them. They decided to breed a type of horse that served their needs, and that's where we get the, the Appaloosa horse from. Yeah. Now, and, you know, What I'm just
2: going to say, it's it's ultimately tons more interesting to consider the fact that when Spanish brought their horses over here and some of those horses escaped, some of those horses became feral, that Native American people effectively reinvented equestrianism on their own in a very short period of time. That's really cool. That's really interesting how a culture reacts to a brand new resource introduced into their territory. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see in the archaeological record. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like, oh yeah, they've been here all along and okay. And we've been riding them. It just, it just doesn't look like that. It looks like a a really interesting reaction on the part of a very resilient and creative people to a new resource that they're, they're going to figure out how they can use this new resource.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, rem- I remember in in uh, Southeast I don't do very much southeastern archaeology in any real sense but I mean I've I've I remember going to school people talking about how you can see in the settlement pattern a dispersal and of course one reason for the dispersal in the historic period is reaction against Spanish raiders and and all of that and and, and being defensive but the other is once the horse starts to get adopted you have substantive changes in the the nature of the society and the economy yeah
1: I mean, yeah. once you have the horse, you can go farther, you can go faster. Hunting styles change, trade changes, horses become a symbol of wealth. Um, right. You know, you, you're the world opens up to you because what took you a day to get across or a month to get across now takes you maybe a week or a few hours. I mean, it what's huge really, back.
2: Yeah, what's interesting, and I do this in my classes all the time when I talk about North American antiquity is I ask these kids – your stereotype of native americans what what are native americans and to this day they will say well they have feather headdresses and they were nomadic and they lived in teepees they hunted buffalo and they rode around on horses right and then you have to then you clue them in says even if that stereotype were true of a particular of plains indians that is a post-contact phenomenon Mm -hmm. those folks were living in agricultural villages and they were settled down they were sedentary and it's the introduction of the horse late in their story that changes everything. And so mm-hmm. the stereotype of native Americans, along with being a stereotype is actually a very, that that stereotype is a very recent kind of, a very recent result of a very recent changes in their cultures.
1: Exactly. And what irritates me, I mean, like the Nez Pierce people picking, seeing these horses and going, Hmm, I can make that better. And then making an right. amazing horse breed, um, what irritates me about this story is not that they did that, but is that part of the whole Lost Tribes of Israel coming over to America thing is the argument is that the uh, the Appaloosa horse breed was in America prior to the founding of the Nez Perce people. And that irritates me because it's removing something that is so clearly tied to these people and handing it over to an unknown not Native American group for the sake of driving this weird theory of the Lost Tribes into to America.
2: Yeah. And listen, we're talking about Appaloosas now. Um, <laughs> and if you're interested in, in Appaloosa pictographs, You have to pick up a copy of my um, Ancient America 50 sites you can see for yourself and and see that Sago Canyon, which is one of the sites in my 50, there's a a beautiful pictograph in Sago Canyon of Native Americans. And it is almost certainly these are Paiute, uh, images of Paiute with an Appaloosa horse painted in reds and whites. And it's really quite, quite beautiful. And you can go to another site, um, Canyon de Chez and you have to get a Navajo guide to bring you down into the canyon and there's this amazing panel of horseback riding priests and we know they're they have big crosses on their on their chests and they are with a bunch of Spanish men with guns. And the Navajo will tell you those priests were there to sanctify the massacre of the Navajo. So the priests gave the the Spanish guys with the guns the okay and and shot up Canyon de Chez to get the Navajo the hell out of there. Wow. Um, but again, it's guys on horseback, and they clearly are. They've got the, the one guy in the middle has this big cape, and he's got a cross. He's wearing a cross, and they're they're holding what appear to be rifles or muskets, and they are the, the vanguard in the canyon to get, to, to, to cleanse. We're doing ethnic cleansing, get the Navajo out. This is a really nice canyon. We want it. Uh, the Spanish will, should, should have control of it.
3: Canyon wow. de Shea, is that spelled in English? C H E L L Y. Yeah. That, yeah. Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah. It's, I, it's a I, I, I'm terrible poem. with the, fr-
3: I'm terrible with the French, but I figured that might be it. Yeah.
2: Yes. It's Canyon de Shea. In fact that there is, there's a, a, um, a, a, a rock shelter or cave, halfway up the cliff in Canyon de shade that's called Massacre Cave and this, the the oral tradition told by the Navajo today is that the the men the warriors were off fighting another contingent of Spanish and that the cave had nothing but women and children mm. left in the cave this the um, the uh, Spanish came upon this cave along with help from their own Native American scouts and that they then shot up the cave and you can still see the bullet holes on the walls of the cave and the, the story that the, the Navajo tell is that everybody died in there except for one young boy who was being sheltered by his mothers and aunts and while they were all being killed they told him that he needed to survive to tell the story and he is the one who it is said escaped that night came back to the canyon when he was an adult and painted this pictograph. On the wall of, of um, deep in the canyon, wow. showing the story that his his aunts and his grandmother and his mothers and his sisters told him, you have to you have to be the one to preserve the story. And uh, I mean, it's just it's a it's a chilling tale. Right. And the Navajo, not for the Navajo, this is history. This isn't folklore.
1: Well, exactly. And saying things like this, like like earlier, or trying to remove pieces of their history, is appalling to me. Um, and I'm sure you guys are not fans of it either, but this is why we – this is why I want to harp on it because I want people to understand that this is real. These are real people. They really have these experiences. This is their history, and we should not be trying to lessen it or poo-poo or, it because we have our own agenda to push.
2: Or, or appropriate it and you know take it away and say, no, we're going to rewrite this, and we – European settlers of the New World Right are gonna be we're the stars of the story. These are right. the the Indians become the extras in this 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 reconstructed story of American history. And um the evidence listen, the evidence is really clear exactly. in this regard and that those reconstructions are simply not accurate.
1: Exactly. All right guys, so have we have we talked this horse to death?
3: Have you beaten it? Is that, is that we, what you're saying?
1: Have we beaten this, we horse, beaten to death? this
2: horse to death. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think th-
3: so. I don't think there's much here, to be honest. I mean, it's 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 one of these I mean, and we run into these all the time. It's it's brutally obvious from a lack of evidence.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you say that and I tend to agree with you because when I first look at this kind of stuff, I have the same reaction. It's like, who in the world why would you think that this is even remotely evidence? But this is the thing that we keep coming back to. It's obvious to us because we've had training to, visit, to see this yes. and we've had experience interacting with it. But few other people who this is maybe the first time they've seen it or, the, or they get bad information from somebody, it could be yeah. a convincing story. So, I mean, no, 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 it,
2: I, could, I could see that. Yeah. But it's, it's important for us to point out that we can appropriate the old cliche what is it about Los Angeles? There's no there there. In this story, there's 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 not there's less there's less to this than meets the eye. Exactly, which is remarkable because there's nothing there in the first place. No,
1: and I so, mean Jeb's completely right. There's there's nothing really here, but unless you're you know what you're looking at, you don't. Well, and do and that. I
3: and I guess the thing that also maybe bothers me about about this sort of thing is some of the things we deal with, and actually I mean this could apply to a lot of the things we deal with, but. Uh, a number of the things that we deal with sometimes are, are at least to some degree, complete stories on their own. But this one feels a lot like if, if this was all these people cared about, I, I think it maybe wouldn't bother me. But it feels very cherry picky. It's like I, you know, I we mean, you know, people wanting to prove lost tribes of Israel in North America, and it's like, okay, if you wanted to prove that, why don't you look at all the evidence? And it becomes this. Well, I have one piece, and I don't even really have that piece. Right. But I'm going to sort of hide that that's what I'm – or not necessarily hide, but not emphasize that's what I'm trying to do. And let me pick another piece over here. And let me pick another piece over here. And then that just starts to – and then on top of it, let me rope in the possibility that, you know what, maybe a relic population survived for some couple thousand years somewhere of horses. And I'm not even saying I'm convinced of that. Like it's an interesting question. But that has nothing to do with the other thing but it's you know when you're when you're when you're you know when you're when when you're literally trying to create a picture out of gaps i mm-hmm. guess you have to pick all the gaps you can take
2: well and you fold it all together and i guess that, that ultimately it doesn't make any difference that the individual pieces of your puzzle are contradictory it's just the experts were wrong
3: well that's why you buy scissors is you make sure that you fit them together <laughs> <laughs> <Scissors and glue. laughs> until until they yes. they fit perfectly some glue some scissors uh, possibly, you know, just taking puzzle pieces from another puzzle.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, and if you if you flip the puzzle upside down, you can draw your own picture on it anyway. So, you
3: know, okay. Oh it's my like, god, uh, that you know what I've exactly never heard happening. that analogy, but that's actually kind of fucking brilliant.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what's happening.
3: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Anyway. Yeah,
1: and Jeb, you would you would be probably you wouldn't be that surprised, but that that's exactly what's happening. It's like there's this larger argument of the need to prove. For example, this migration of the Lost Tribes of Israel to America, and it is really just cherry-picking random things and trying to stitch them together. And the horses are just one of several random things, and we will talk about them as the year goes on, I'm sure, that people just desperately try to throw together.
2: Have I mentioned the, the old movie, the Jane Fonda movie, Cat Baloo, on this podcast?
3: I don't know. Uh, I don't it's think, it's uh, a yeah. it's
2: very it's a hilarious movie. It's very funny. Lee Marvin plays two roles. Funny, funny movie. And one of the themes of the movie, Jane Fonda is a young, um, highly educated woman from the West who's gone east, and she's a teacher. Her father back in um, in the West needs her back, and she returns to to work on his ranch. There's all kinds of mayhem that's going on. Her father is a very firm believer. The character in the movie in the fact that the Indians are the lost tribes of Israel, but he goes further, he believes that the Indians are well aware of this, but are keeping it a secret. So during the movie, he has a young Navajo man who li- who works on his ranch. He. He, every once in a while, he'll sneak up behind him, yell something in Yiddish at the at the young man, expecting him to answer in Yiddish. Because he'll forget that he can't, that he shouldn't let anybody know he's actually a descendant of the lost tribes of Israel. Wow! Um, That's so, funny. <laughs> which is it's kind of hilarious. So and funny. he keeps, no, this is wrong. We, honest to God, we're not. And I, very funny.
1: All right, guys. Final thoughts. That was. Uh, the I, final I
2: think
3: thoughts. we've covered it.
1: All right. All right. Well guys, thanks for being on the call with me and I will Absolutely. talk to you
0: later. Take care, Sarah. Take care, as one we'll call. No we don't do a dinosaur.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by ArcheoSoup Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archeofantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archeofantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at ArchieFantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com slash ArchieFantasies. Thanks again for listening.
0: No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs.